Well, I am glad that we are able to continue our series through the book of Revelation, so I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. And if you remember, we've been looking at the wonder and the worship of God's heavenly throne that we find not only in this chapter, but also in the next chapter, chapter 5, and then really ongoing. So much of what we find through chapter 9 occurs here at this throne room vision that is given by Jesus to John. And of course, this particular vision was given to John in order to share with the seven churches of Asia. Uh, so it wasn't just the seven messages that we saw in the first three chapters, but really the entire book of Revelation is for these seven churches. And it was to help them with the challenges that they were facing, which included both persecution by two of those churches, the church there in Smyrna, as well as the church in Philadelphia. Uh, but then the other five churches were facing issues with purity. And so this throne room vision would have helped both kinds of churches, whether they're faithful or struggling in even unfaithfulness, to help them through those challenges. As we learned last Sunday, in heaven, and really before God's throne, everything is as it's supposed to be. And so what a wonderful thing for us to realize when everything else in this world seems to be going wacky, yet we're thankful that in heaven, everything is as it's supposed to be. And I'd like us to read through this spectacular scene one more time here in Revelation 4. And then, of course, this is just added to in chapter 5, which we'll get to next Sunday. So Revelation chapter 4. John writes, After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, thrones. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass, like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four living ones, full of eyes, before and behind. And the first living one was like a lion, and the second living one like a calf. And the third living one had a face as a man, and the fourth living one was like a flying eagle. And the four living ones had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those living ones give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Now the worship at 
this throne, as we've considered, as, as we just read, is actually led by two groups. Two groups of likely angelic beings that are first introduced to us in this chapter. And yet they are not going to be missing throughout the book of Revelation. Uh, but the first group that leads this worship, as we considered last Sunday, is the four living ones. The four living ones, and they express their worship at the throne in verses 8 and 9. And this is just review from last Sunday to kind of get us up to speed to what we'll be looking at this Sunday. Uh, there in verse 8, we were first told what they were saying in their worship. And many believe that this might have been said as a hymn. So it was sung by these living ones. And of course, it's much like the song that we sing, Holy, 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 that we will actually be singing and learning a little bit more about the history of that, that hymn even tonight. But again, verse 8, they say or sing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And what we considered is that is the first of five praises that we find in this throne room vision found in chapters 4 and 5. And this particular hymn, this particular praise, is a trisagion praise. That is because it has the three holies, trisagion, holy, holy, holy. And of course, this is also found in Isaiah's vision of God's heavenly throne found in Isaiah chapter 6. And so we see that from Old Testament to New Testament, from the past to the present to the future, this is the praise that is ongoing in heaven at the throne room of God in order to give him the praise and the glory that he is due. Uh, but then in verse 9, again, review, we also were told what these living ones were doing in their worship. So what they said was holy, 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 but what were they doing as they said or sang those words? Holy, holy, holy. Uh, verse 9, they were giving glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne. And so that is what this holy, holy, holy praise is. It's, it's glory and honor, and, and there might have been other things that were said or at least felt in their hearts as they gave thanks to the one that sat on the throne. And one of the things that we considered at the end of our lesson last Sunday is that we can learn a lot about what true heavenly worship is based on what we find in these hymns and what we find in these praises. And of course, what the living ones were doing in giving glory to God, to give glory to God simply means that you recognize His glory and then you praise Him for it. So you recognize God's glory and then you praise Him for it. To give honor to God, which is also what these living ones were doing, means that you respect His glory. So you don't just acknowledge or recognize it, but then you respect it. And of course, what is God's glory? Um, all throughout the Bible, the idea of God's glory is reflected in the image of light. And just like light is made up of all the different spectrums that we can see with the eye, as well as other spectrums that we can't see with the naked eye, uh, and you would even describe the ones that we can see with color, so the glory of God, the, the brightness of God's glory is made up of all of his attributes, all of his characteristics, all of the things that really make up God, including his holiness, including his truth, including his love, and all of those things. So God's glory is the visible display of his character and of his attributes. And what this glory will do, it, it doesn't just make an impression on your mind to acknowledge it, 
when you're worshiping. But when you're truly worshiping, like these living ones are worshiping, it will also make an impression on your heart. So you'll identify those characteristics of God's glory, and then you will respect him for it. You'll respond to it. You'll respect. And that is what give honor to God means. So the worship and the praise of these living ones in heaven came from their hearts. That is what they said, is what they meant, and that is true heavenly worship. So to give glory to God means that you recognize His glory. To give honor to God means that you respect His glory from the heart. And then to give thanks to God. Uh, this clearly is a response to God's glory with gratitude and with thanksgiving that He alone is due for all that He is, for all that He has done, and continues to do for you. And as we considered even last Sunday, these living ones also had much to be thankful to God for. After all, He is, as we sometimes sing in the doxology, He is the one from whom all blessings flow. All blessings. And so we are to give, along with these living ones, Him that sat on the throne, His glory, the honor, and the thanks that he is due. Well, as we come to the end of this chapter, chapter 4, we also see that the worship, God, worship of God continues. It continues. Uh, because there in verses 10 and 11, the second group that we find that um, join in with their own worship and also lead worship there in heaven are the 24 elders. Uh, we've already learned a little bit about the 24 elders earlier in this chapter, uh, but after the living ones introduce the worship of God at the throne, now the living ones or the elders join in with their own worship. And it is their worship that we will consider this morning. Uh, because what we're told there again in verse 9 is when those living ones give glory and honor and thanks to God the Father, to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever. So when they're doing this, as they're doing this, who joins in? Verse 9. The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever. And they even cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So here we have the two groups of angelic beings, most likely bringing this worship to God in heaven. Because again, everything in heaven is as it's supposed to be. But once again, implied in the worship of both the living ones and these elders is an invitation. An invitation for all of God's creatures and all of God's people to join with them in worship. Uh, if you remember, the elders most likely represent the redeemed of the Lord. And the living ones most likely represent the creation of the Lord. And so all together, all those that belong to the Lord by creation and redemption, join with them in this worship. And so the first thing that we can see from these 24 elders' worship in verse 10 is that it moves them to actually do some things before God. Not just say things, but do things. Again, verse 10, the four and 20 elders fall down. That's an action, that's an act of worship before God, before him that sat on the throne, and worship him that liveth forever. And here's another activity and something else that they do, and they cast their crowns before the throne. So here we have some things that they are doing in addition to what they are saying. 
Now, the first thing that we see in this verse is the position of worship by these elders. The position of worship by these elders. That is, they fell down before the Lord. We're not told that they just simply bowed down before the Lord, but they fell down before God in a prostrate way. That is, they fell down flat on their face. Now, it's one thing to bow, it's one thing to fall. Uh, you know, it's a, a polite thing in some cultures when you greet someone instead of a handshake to do just a, a, a polite bow. But to truly show worship and, and to show the, the exalted status of the one that you are before and the humble status that you possess, you would fall down. And the idea is even casting themselves down. It wasn't a slow thing. It was a fast thing, a quick thing, a quick response from their heart because they knew who it was that they were before. So this position is a deep, deep, heartfelt expression of humility before the exalted position of God on his throne. And this is the position of worship. Now, we know throughout Scripture there are other positions of worship, and, and certainly the greatest position of worship for, ought to be the position of our heart, of humility before God. But sometimes uh, it, it ought to be a physical expression of that position of humility in the heart before God. And sometimes that might be in, in exulting in the Lord with raised hands or other times it is falling flat on our face before God in prayer because He is truly worthy. Again, this position of worship by the elders is an expression, a deep expression of their humility before God. Uh, but then we also see in this verse the purpose of worship by these elders, the purpose of their worship. Why do they fall down? Why did they cast themselves down before the presence of God there on the throne? Well, a couple reasons based on what we see in this verse. Uh, first of all, they fell down before God because of God's great power. Because of God's great power. Again, we find him as the one who sat on the throne. That is, he belongs on the throne. There's no one else who is allowed on this throne. It belongs to God and God alone. He is sovereign. And as the sovereign God, he has infinite, eternal power. And this caused those 24 living ones, created beings, them, or 24 elders, created beings themselves, to fall flat before God and worship him. The second reason why they fell down before God is because of God's great presence. This is also reflected in that verse. Not only is God the one who sat on the throne, he is also the one who lives and lives forever and ever. I mean, God is life, right? God is life, and that life has no end, and it has no beginning. And so because of God's great eternal presence from eternity past to eternity future, and, and we even still speak of eternity in terms of times, but before God, there is no time. He is just eternal. And because of that existence, because of that presence, these elders fall down before him. Now, the reasons, these two reasons for the elders' profound act of humility and respect are actually the same reasons given for the worship of the living ones that are given back in verse 9. And you see that repetition, right? Uh, the, the living ones sing holy, holy, holy to the Lord because he is the one who sat on the throne and he is also the one who lives forever and ever. And that is also duplicated here for the worship of the the elders. And the reason for the emphasis or the, the repetition is emphasis. Um, just like we saw at, with the, 
the Trisogion with holy, holy, holy. Uh, there's great emphasis on that characteristic of God. He is infinitely holy, the thrice holy God. And so we have this duplication of the reasons for worship given because it emphasizes the character of God that deserves our worship as well because of God's great power and because of God's great presence. And really that ought to be what the power and presence of God ought to cause in our own hearts to do. We ought to worship him because of his eternal nature, but also his infinite presence. One of the things that I think sometimes we forget is that as we gather together, especially as his saints in worshiping in a place like this today, is God is here. God is here. Yes, God is everywhere. God is present on the planet, or I think it's still considered a planet, or maybe it's not considered a planet anymore, Pluto. Um, but God's presence is also here in a special way, a unique way, because he dwells among his people. And yet he is also, at the same time, eternally existent in heaven, displaying himself in these amazing, beautiful colors. So again, we ought to bow down before God, and not just bow down, but to fall down before God, certainly in our hearts, but sometimes necessarily even with our bodies, in absolute fear, holy fear and reverence before this one who sits on the throne and who abides and lives forever and ever. So that is the purpose of worship. Those are the reasons for worship by both the elders and the living ones. But then we also see from this verse, oh, the great passion of worship by these elders, the great passion of worship. Because we're told that uh, the other thing that they do besides bowing and falling down before God is that they then, verse 10, cast their crowns before the throne. They cast them there. Now, is this on their way down? Or is this while they are down, we're not told, but they're casting their crowns before the throne. And as we think about those thrones, we need to remember, or those crowns, we need to remember what those crowns were made of. What were they made of? They were made of gold, weren't they? In fact, if you go back to verse 4, we are told specifically that these are crowns of gold. And of, of course, gold is a very precious commodity. Uh, it is today, and it certainly was back then. That's one of the reasons why wedding rings are made up of gold typically, because it shows the value that you place on the marriage that God has given to you. And so what we learn from this is that what to us might be the most valuable or one of the most valuable and precious of metals, gold, for the elders, those golden crowns are nothing Nothing compared to the value and precious nature of the God who is before them. And so they take those golden crowns that were on their head, likely given to them by God, and they cast them before God because it's really of no value before God. They cast them, which is clearly an expression of their love and affection for God. You know, it's the gift that was given to them that they give back to God. And, and truly, isn't that what God desires from us? We have nothing apart from what God has given to us. He's gifted us with so many things, and what true worship is is basically giving back to him what he has already given to us because of our love and appreciation and really adoration of him because he is of more value to us than any other treasure. In fact, 
with this example of the essence of worship, we realize that God himself is our greatest treasure. God himself is our greatest treasure. Just like the Lord Jesus Christ is that pearl of great price that we find in the Gospels, uh, where you will sell all that you have so that you can achieve and obtain that thing that is most precious, more precious than anything else in this world, that is God. That is our Lord. Nothing can compare to him. So those are the motions of worship that are you know, unique here in chapter 4 to these 24 elders. But those motions of worship are then accompanied by more words of worship and praise. We find this in verse 11, which again is the last verse of this chapter. But this is what they say to God. This is what they say to God. This would be the, the second praise, the second hymn, perhaps, of praise to the Lord. And these 24 elders say, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Again, this is not just the second one in this passage, but it's the second of five in chapters four and five. We'll get to the other ones as we continue. Um, but the elders here in this song of praise refer to the reality of God's value. The reality of God's value. Because, or that is, because of his great and infinite value as the Lord. Remember, Lord means master. The Greek is kurios. Because of God's great and infinite value as the Lord, he alone is worthy and deserving of their praise. So this is the reality of his value. He is worthy. God is worthy. Now in Revelation, there are only four that we find that are worthy of something. Uh, to be worthy of something means that you're deserving of something. Uh, here in chapter 4, it is the Lord who is worthy of all worship. Whether it's the worship of the elders or the worship of the living ones, the Lord is worthy, deserving of that worship. Uh, in chapter 5, we find that the Lamb of God is also worthy of praise and worship, deserving of that. So we have God the Father and God the Son represented as those who are worthy. Uh, we saw this concept of being worthy and deserving already in chapter 3. Back in chapter 3, uh, there were some members of the church in Sardis who did not defile themselves. So they did not succumb to the immorality and the idolatry that was rampant in that church. And because they did not defile themselves and were really in the process of overcoming that challenge, they are called worthy. So here we have God the Father, and now we have uh, God the Son in chapter 5, and, and back in chapter 3 we have God's people, God's faithful, are also worthy. But what were they worthy of? They were worthy of God's blessing. And that's why in chapter 3, verse 4, the Lord says that they, those who are worthy, shall walk with me in white. So they will be, giving, be given a righteousness eternally, which is the righteousness that they were pursuing in this life. And so they were worthy. Can you imagine? God the Father who is worthy and God the Son who is worthy is pronouncing to those who are faithful to them that they also are worthy. They actually bring us up into their classification. I mean, obviously not in an infinite way as they are, but the worthy ones actually call us and 
in fact, make us worthy, deserving of all the rewards that God will give us. That's humbling. That's powerful. That's amazing. And that ought to cause us to worship. But there is also in Revelation a fourth group, another group that is worthy of something. Uh, You don't need to turn there, but in chapter 16, uh, those who are worthy are those who actually shed the blood of saints and prophets. So whereas the first three are deserving of something positive, here we have those who shed the blood of saints and prophets, they are worthy of something negative. And they are worthy of what the Lord will do for them or do to them in chapter 16, verse 6. The Lord will give them blood to drink, for they are worthy. They are deserving of that. So again, to be worthy means to be deserving of something. And the Lord is certainly worthy of our praise, just like he is worthy of the praise of those created angelic beings in heaven above. But then in the elders' praise, uh, we find something else there in verse 11. That is the review of God's value. The review of God's value, because they specifically say to the Lord, or even sing to the Lord, these words, Thou art worthy. You are deserving. The one who is sitting on the throne that lives forever and ever, God the Father himself, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Now, those three descriptions of their worship, or what God was worthy of, is something similar to what the living ones were giving to the Lord. Uh, In fact, if you... Um, Consider back in verse 9, again, the living ones were giving God glory and honor and thanks, right? And now here we have the elders saying to the Lord that he deserves glory and honor and power. And so basically they are echoing what the living ones were doing and saying, God, everything that they're doing to you, giving you glory and honor and thanks, you are worthy of, but in addition to that, you are worthy also of all power, of all power. So altogether, this is the elder's review of God's value, of God's excellence, because he alone deserves and is worthy of all glory, all honor, and all power from all things. Now, one of the interesting things between in the difference between what the living ones give there in verse 9, and what the elders say here in verse 11 is back in verse 9, there's no article in the Greek for before glory and honor and thanks. But here in verse 11, when the elders are saying this praise to the Lord, it could also actually be translated, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive the glory and the honor and the power, because there's an article before each one of them in the Greek, and that can imply it, it means all of the glory, all of the honor, all of the power in all of the universe. You are worthy of that to come before you and worship. So again, echoing what the living ones were doing in their worship, we can see that the Lord deserves everyone and everything recognizing his glory and praising him for it. Again, that's what it meant for the living ones to give glory. And that's what it means here for the Lord to receive glory. It's that everyone and everything is recognizing his glory and praising him for it. But also, again, echoing what the living ones did. The Lord deserves everyone and everything 
respecting His glory. Again, that's honoring, right? Respecting His glory. So what was to give honor by the living ones is now transitioned to the Lord receiving that honor. He is worthy of everyone and everything recognizing His glory even though they don't and respecting His glory even though they don't. He is still worthy of it. But then we also come to that word that was different, and that is his power, the power. The Lord deserves everyone and everything submitting to his glory and to his power. Uh, power has the idea of, of authority and might and strength, and that's what it means for the Lord to receive power. It means that all those who have any kind of power, any kind of authority in this world, actually come and submit their authority before God's authority. That's worship. Sadly, that's not what we see with the powers that be that are in this world. Uh, but the ones that truly honor God, the ones that truly respect God, the ones that truly recognize His glory, the ones that truly will be blessed by God are the ones who take the authority that they've been given and submit it to the authority of God. And that is what these elders mean when they say, Lord, you are worthy to receive all power. Not that they add anything to his power, but rather they submit their own power, their own authority to his infinite power. Again, the Lord deserves and is worthy of this kind of worship from everyone and everything. And this may be one of the reasons why when you look at the uh, living ones and what they might represent as well as the elders and what they represent, it might be one of the reasons why all of creation and all of the redeemed are represented in heaven giving worship to God. It's because everything in heaven is as it's supposed to be. And so even though not yet in this world is everything as it's supposed to be, yet we have the ideal in heaven and that is something that we gravitate to. That's something that we exult. That's something that we praise. That's something that we long and even pray, as, as Jesus taught us, that thy will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. And what is God's will? That all creation and all redemption come before him and worship him in this way. So that is why we need to join in here on earth with this kind of worship that is taking place in heaven. Uh, but then the elders give us the reasons for God's value. The reasons for God's value. It's because there in verse 11, for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure or even thy will, they are and were created. So this is what makes God, God. This is what makes God so precious and valuable and so excellent in all of the universe. Some of the reasons, first of all, it's because of his power to create all things, his power to create all things. Uh, thou hast created all things, they sing and praise to the Lord. Uh, of course, this truth points us all the way back to the very beginning and even the record of creation in Genesis, Genesis 1.1, uh, probably one of the first verses that you learned when you were in Sunday school or as a child. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And so we see even in that verse that everything that there is, God created time, God created matter, God created all things in the very beginning. 
And the Lord is worthy to be praised by the very creatures which he created, including us. I mean, that's the way it was designed to be. Adam and Eve were created ultimately for the glory of God in order to worship him in this way. And of course, when they fell and they sinned and they rebelled, and of course that sinful nature passed on all men, and guess what? We're not doing what we're supposed to be doing before God. We aren't worshiping him the way we ought to be worshiping him. And that's why we need to be redeemed so that that purpose could be restored in our own lives. And so again, the Lord is worthy to be praised by the very creatures which he created, including us. So this is one of the reasons for his value, his power to create. He is also worthy to be praised because of his pleasure to create. Uh, that's what we find here in the King James. And for thy pleasure, they are and were created. Uh, the Greek word that is translated there, pleasure, is the word thelema, which simply means will. His purpose, his desire, his will. And so it could also be translated that way. For thy will, or according to your will, they are and were created. And what this means is that everything that exists now, everything that exists now, that's when he, when he describes, or they describe, they are. They are. So what exists now? Well, just look around you. Uh, look around at your neighbor. Uh, look around the setting of our church. Uh, look around your community. Look around your neighborhood. Look around the world. Everything that exists, exists because of God's will, because of God's pleasure. If God doesn't will it, if God doesn't take pleasure in it, if God can't be glorified in it, it doesn't exist. But if it does, it's according to God's own will. He is the one that sustains all things. And everything that was created then also was according to his will. Now this looks back again toward the beginning. So everything that is now and everything that was then has all been because of God's will. Because of God's sovereign purpose, pleasure, and will. It's all in accordance with his choice because he alone is sovereign. Now, these truths are what especially caused the elders to fall down and worship the Lord in this way. Because it's the theme of God's great sovereignty. God is sovereign. This is something that we see all throughout the book of Revelation. In fact, God is sovereign over everything that is in this world, everything that exists, but he's also sovereign over everything that is going on in this world. Now that theme of God's sovereignty is all throughout the book of Revelation. It's implied in, in every act, in every scene, in every event. Nothing takes God by surprise. He's mapping out exactly what it is that is his will and his pleasure for the existence of this world and the end of this world. Now for the churches in chapters 2 and 3, again, we can't divorce chapters 4 forward from chapters 2 and 3 because these are written to these churches. For the churches in chapters 2 and 3 that were facing persecution, this would have been encouraging to them to keep on trusting the Lord. God is sovereign. He's still sitting on his throne. He lives forever and ever. And that is why you can trust him even when you are facing persecution, the likes of which this world has never seen. Now, 
Think about the churches in our own day and age that are facing severe persecution. You know, I was watching a video just the other day of a, a young man that took one of those uh, tour group trips to North Korea. You know, and everything from the tour group that he had to go with and, and just the two or three days that he was there, everything was mapped out because it's such an oppressive regime. But, you know, there are believers, there are brothers and sisters in Christ that, that live there and suffer there and struggle there and seek to fellowship with God and with each other there. In fact, before the, the war, the Korean War, um, I understood that uh, there, it was a, there was a strong missionary presence in not just South Korea, but especially in North Korea and even in Pyongyang the capital city of North Korea. In fact, it was known as the Jerusalem of Asia. Get that. It was known as the Jerusalem because missionaries were coming and there was great revivals taking place there. There was a great presence of the gospel there. And then, of course, the war changed so much of that. But there is still, there is still a remnant of that missionary activity and that gospel power that is present there. And we only get glimpses of those things. But when they, when our brothers and sisters in those persecuted churches like the church in North Korea read through the book of Revelation and come to chapter 4 and ch chapter 5, think about how encouraging it is to them to know that God is still sitting on his throne. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign over everything that is in this world, including them, and over, thing, over everything that is going on in this world, including what they face. May we take that to heart and worship God like these elders. Also, though, think about the churches that were facing purity issues. And again, in our context, even in our own country, probably especially in our own country, this is what we're facing. We're facing purity issues in our churches. Our, where are we at in the pendulum where we have the character of God on display to us in the scripture, just like we found in chapters 2 and 3. And then we have the culture and the character of the world. And where are we at in that pendulum? Are we closer to the character of God or are we closer to the character of the world? Obviously, each congregation and each church is different, but if you look at the church as a whole in America, it is more like the world. You can just drive up 40 and you can see a, a billboard at a church and and it it's basically says the church at the movies or sermons at the movies or something like that. I don't remember what it says, but is that where we get our messages from? Is that where we get our services from? Is that where we get our illustrations from? I think that's more gravitating toward the culture of the world rather than the culture of Christ. So we understand that we are facing purity issues. But as we come to this throne room vision, we ought to recognize that God is exhorting us through this vision to turn to the Lord even more, to gravitate back toward His holiness, His holy, holy, holiness, to gravitate back toward His character instead of the world's, because God is still on His throne. And so as these living ones and as these elders join together in worship, we are also invited to join them in their heavenly worship. Remember, Revelation is not just for us to read it or to hear it. It's for us to keep it and apply it and to adopt much of what we learn about the realities in heaven. Now, there is one more thing to note about this worship. And that is that it is both an individual act and 
a corporate act. So, yes, we have the, the individual activity of worship uh, because we have the living ones and these 24 elders doing and saying and singing these things personally. Personally, individually. They're doing it from their own heart in response to God. But they're also doing it corporately. They're also doing it as a group. They're do doing it together. And so what we learn about worship is, yeah, it is an individual thing, but it can't stay an individual thing. It must be incorporated and combined with others who are doing it personally in a way that multiplies the praise of God's glory. So when we gather together for worship as a church, we ought to take the worship that we've done individually in our own closets and our own devotions here with us and then to express that worship together in a joint, corporate, harmonious way before God. And so when any one of us is lacking that spirit of worship or even the motions of worship or even the words of worship or even the singing of worship, there's something missing in our corporate worship. And so we ought to we ought to have the same kind of passion that those elders did, throwing down our, our figurative golden crowns before God's feet. And as we all do that, imagine the kind of worship that we will experience in this place. Isn't this how we should see our own worship here in chapter 4? Again, we need to do it personally, from our own hearts, with our own voices, but then we also need to do it together with others, and especially with our church. The theme of this particular chapter is that God is worthy of your praise. God is worthy of your worship. Again, verse 11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this day. We thank you for this opportunity that we have together, uh, to gather here together and to not just learn these truths that we find in your word, but also to worship you according to them. And so, Father, as we've learned a little bit more about the worship that takes place in heaven, even now by those living ones and, and by those 24 elders, may we accept that invitation and join with them today and to worship our great sovereign God who is sitting on the throne and who lives forever and ever. Because, Lord, we know that that is one of the things that we will be able to do forever and ever, and that's to worship you. Because in heaven, and really in the new heavens and the new earth, everything will be as it's supposed to be. But, Lord, I pray that that, that truth, that reality, will start in our own hearts even today. And so, Father, I pray that we will take what we learned about worship with us into our worship service in the next hour. We pray, Lord, your blessing upon that. Uh, we pray that you will... Uh, encourage us to take to heart the words that you give us that we listen to and the words that we sing from our hymn books and just the other expressions of worship that we can do, the motions of worship. May we do it in response to your glory, in response to the fact that you are holy, holy, holy. We pray, O oh Lord, that you be with Brother Art as he brings the message from your word. We pray that you will lend him power from on high and that, Lord, we will see you through him and the words that you give him even today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.